Thanks again, Caleb. Uh, good morning, everybody. Caleb, uh, well, that, you know, that story hits on a lot of Genesis themes, actually. I was thinking, hearing that for a second time, I didn't hear it this first service, but thinking through it a second time, um, a lot of uh, God working through evil themes, you know, God choosing to work through suffering, the un- working through the unlikely circumstances, you know, I think that's a major theme, so it, it complements well, so, um, but anyway, thanks for sharing, bro. Um, guys, we are in uh, Genesis right now uh, in, in a sermon series that it will take us through December, so we're uh, about halfway, at least chapter-wise through the book, but preaching-wise a lot further along, about two-thirds uh, the way through. You can turn to Genesis 27 in your Bibles if you want, or um, follow along on screen. Looking at the theme of the older will serve the younger today, from Genesis 27, 1 to 40, a uh, longer passage. We'll uh, summarize some of it and, and read uh, most of it explicitly. I'll get to that in a second, but Uh, Just to remind you guys where we are, if you're brand new to the Bible or Genesis, I haven't been here for a while, uh, Genesis is the book of beginnings, biblically. It's the first book of the Bible, and a lot of beginning-like theologies in the book, and so a lot of people say this, and we would concur, that to understand the Bible uh, is uh, a great place to start is to look at Genesis, because it sets in motion a lot of theological themes that find their finish line in Christ, find their finish line in the gospel, and a lot of characteristics of God, a lot of ways of him covenanting with sinners, undeservedly. Uh, a lot of ways that he prom- makes promises that he later fulfills and uh, all kinds of things like that uh, start in Genesis. And so we've, we've looked at creation. We've looked at sin, how it came into the world. We've looked at flood narratives and things like that and judgment narratives and things like that too. But lots of grace interwoven. And so as we've been saying, the, the gist of the book is really a, a story about family narratives, uh, patriarchal narratives they're called theologically, uh, stories about Abraham and his son Isaac and his grandson Jacob and his great-grandson Joseph uh, in Judah as well. We'll talk about him a little bit later on. Uh, but the Genesis patriarch narratives here, just to summarize again uh, where we've been or to share with you for the first time, this is a new book to you. Their, their purpose in the book is to serve as early pictures of how God shows grace to sinners and who themselves and whose stories resemble Jesus or some other New Testament reality uh, ahead of time. And uh, we're, we're getting that from the Bible, to be clear. So when you look at how Genesis is quoted in the New Testament, it's always to these ends. It's always as beginnings of the gospel or the gospel beforehand or the element of grace over and against works beforehand or some kind of related idea. And so, um, so in context then, we are looking at Abraham's uh, son Isaac and his wife Rebecca. And we started this story two weeks ago in chapter 25 when they had twins. Uh, they had, um, turn it on there, there we go. Isaac and Rebecca had twins named Esau and Jacob. Uh, we looked at the story of how the older brother Esau sold his birthright or his inheritance foolishly for uh, temporal pleasure, for a bowl of stew. Uh, to Jacob, the younger conniving uh, trickster brother. So we'll see that play out today in chapter 27. So what follows today, in today's passage, is the, kind of the end cap on that story where Jacob gets the inheritance and Esau is left with nothing. And um, so a, a little bit of biblical theological math here. Uh, understand this, otherwise it won't mean a lot, uh, is that when the Bible talks about inheritance, it's talking about salvation. Uh, not necessarily in a one-to-one correlation, but these are uh, kind of foggy images of God showing grace. They're foggy images of God showing uh, his generosity. Uh, think about an inheritance like through a will. It's given, uh, but it's not earned. And so that's why inheritance is talked about in the New Testament as something that God gives the people who believe in his son. Uh, We are given an inheritance in Christ. And so it's meant to convey grace. It's meant to convey the idea that we're saved by God's work, by what he worked kind of his whole life, figuratively speaking, to kind of push the metaphor a bit, and gave through his death, his son's death, he dispensed benefits to us. And we're the beneficiaries of that will or covenant. And so we've been given grace, we've been given salvation, given closeness to God again after we've been separated from him through our sins. And so have that in mind at least. If you're jumping right in the middle of the book, this can kind of be a little bit shocking, kind of a little bit of a uh, a kind of knee-jerk thing. But if you have that uh, basic uh, connection there, that inheritance is a picture of grace and salvation, uh, you will get, hopefully, uh, quite a bit from, uh, from this. And so uh, in chapter 25 then, remember Esau rejected the inheritance, like we said, which is a picture then of a person rejecting God's grace. And then Jacob today, uh, and kind of back then too, but in chapter 27 especially, he's a, a picture of uh, a messed up Christian being given grace inexplicably. So let's, let's read then. Genesis 27, 1 to 40, 
uh, Isaac hears at the end of his life, he's about to die, and he brings in Esau, his firstborn, thinking he's the guy that gets the inheritance. He's the one that gets the blessing, all my stuff, as I'm about to die. Uh, he says to him, make a meal, and we'll talk over the meal, kind of work out the details and kind of enact uh, the will, essentially, like that. And then um, Rebecca and Jacob scheme uh, to uh, take it away from him and, and give it to Jacob. It's basically the summary. So verse 1 to 40, uh, probably best actually to follow along on screen. I summarized part of this, so if you're in your Bibles, I'm going to skip a little bit. So just follow along on screen and then kind of jump back if you want to follow along in your Bibles for context after that. So verse 1 to 40. When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Behold, I am old and I do not know the day of my death. Now then take your weapons, your quiver, and your bow, and go out into the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, and that my soul may bless you before I die. Now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, Bring me two goats that I may prepare the meal, and you may bring it to your father, that he might bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son, and obey my voice and go uh, bring them to me. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goat she put on his hands and the smooth part of his neck. And she put the, the delicious food as well and the bread, which she had prepared, into the hand of her son Jacob. So when he went into his father and said, My father... Uh, and, and he said, here I am, uh, who are you, my son? Uh, Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near me, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went to uh, Isaac, his father, who felt him, and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven and the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau's brother came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me and I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him? Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I have made him lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants, and with grain and wine I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even also, even me also, my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restless... 
he shall break his yoke from your neck. All right, well, here we go. Let's dive into this one uh, a little bit. A couple of sides to begin here. Um, first is, you know, a little bit of family dysfunction. Uh, if, you, if you noticed, if you've never read this story, you've, you've, you've got a good mouthful of dysfunction. Uh, healthy uh, helping there. Uh, Thanksgiving must have been tough that year for them. But, um, but again, just you can layer it on here, right? There's lying, there's deception, there's stealing, there's favoritism, there's marital division, hatred, cursings, you name it. And there's other things too in chapter 25 we didn't talk about. But, and we're not done. Uh, we're going to see more Jacob, Esau kind of interactions here play out before this narrative is completely done. But I just want to mention this as an aside because Spence talked about it uh, really well last week in regards to chapter 26 uh, because this comes up, well, actually it's come up a lot, right, in Genesis. We've seen this theme play out over and over again, and that is, this is the family God chose to bring his son through. This is the family he chose to bring his solution to death and sin through. This is the ancestry of Jesus Christ right here. This doesn't make a lot of spiritual and theological sense, if you think of it. It's not logical on that level. Uh, at least as you, as you apply, apply grace to it, and we'll talk about that today, makes a little more sense. But as you apply the idea of kind of reasonability and really, is there no one else? Is there no other family? There's a lot of people on the earth at this point, you know? Is there no other family you could have chosen to work through? And I think in God's, God's eyes and his answer to this is no. This is his choice. He's not He's not changing things when Abraham gets messy. He's not changing things when Isaac gets messy. He's not changing things here when Jacob and Rebekah get messy and when Esau's a fool rejecting things two chapters ago, rejecting the grace of God for a bowl of stew. Uh, he's, not, he's not turning off course at that point. But he chose this family to reveal his plan of redemption through. Not exactly the most polished of people, right? It says a ton about the gospel, a ton about grace. Uh, Matthew 1, the first chapter of the New Testament, is a genealogy of Jesus Christ that highlights some of these people. To remind us of it, the, the, the author Matthew and God through him is intending, is intending us to kind of hyperlink with these names, to think Jacob's in that list, you know, Rebecca and, all, and, and Isaac, and, and to think about these stories. And to, and so that we can conclude that the Son of God came from them and then in order that he might enter into these stories and, and bear these types of sins and messiness. He came from them. He came from us, people like us. We are Jacob's family, in a sense. We are these types of people. So the fact that God came from this line himself, he became a human being in this line, says a ton about the gospel early on, that he came to enter into messiness. Not to come alongside it and kind of speak at it, but to enter into it himself. He was born from it. Though perfect, he didn't inherit it. He entered into the line nonetheless uh, as, as a a perfect human being to kind of bring an end to the mess, bring an end to the sin, bring an end to that inherited sin idea uh, that kind of transmits through the Old, the Old Testament. And again, flip it on its head too. We, we talked about this, but if works is the idea and not grace, if God looks at the world and says, I save the best kinds of people, this chapter would not be in the Bible. It would make no sense whatsoever because there are better people in the world than this. There are less dysfunctional families. If it's by works we're saved, this makes no sense. If it's by grace we're saved, this makes a lot of sense. If God came into the world to save messy people, this makes a lot of sense. If God came into the world to save people who have it together, this makes no sense. You see that, that correlation? This is the gospel of, of Genesis, repeated every single week. Uh, the messes don't convey these are the heroes, in a sense. They're, if they have faith, then I guess there's someone, someone to emulate. But they're not really the heroes. God's the hero. Uh, God's the hero because he, he's stronger than this stuff. He's bigger than it. And he's bigger than the stuff inside here as well, inside of our hearts. The, the, the second thing is, uh, is sort of the question, you know, if, you, if you're reading this for the first time, again, um, it's, maybe you had these questions too, but I, I've read this a lot and I keep having this question uh, but if we ask the question, really, you know, a couple of times, it's a couple of reallys in this story. Uh, a lot of stories have that. But a couple of reallys, you know, isn't, it, could Isaac really not tell the difference between a goat skin and his son's Esau's hairy arms, you know? I mean, parents usually know kind of the, the you know, even the smell that says here and the, and the feel and the voice and, and that comes up here when he thinks it's actually, it sounds like Jacob, right? Uh, but I, part of the dramatic element of this is, really? 
I mean, I know he's old and senile and blind, but is that, is that, would that really ever, ever happen? And, and two things to that. One, I think narratively you can kind of address it uh, in the sense that he is old and senile, uh, he can't see, and he's probably not thinking very lucidly. Uh, two, though, remember, he has no idea that Rebecca heard any of this. And so he has no reason to believe Jacob knows about it. And so that the fact that Jacob would just appear like this first uh, would make kind of no sense. He would just think, well, Esau, we, we had this private conversation. And so Rebecca's hearing behind closed doors, kind of from afar, and then kind of plots with Jacob. And so there's, there's that element, but, but again, he was super old as well. Other things we could say there. But I think the greater answer to this question, though, of uh, would this really happen is no. In one sense, I, maybe that's part of the point to narratives like this is, has this ever happened? Have you ever seen this happen? I'm guessing everyone would say, no, that's the, this is kind of a special deal. I don't think it's quite the messy family, but this kind of takes the cake. Uh, that's probably part of the point is, is there's dramatic elements here that wouldn't happen without God's help. So to say, this would never happen. That is, unless God is involved, then it will happen. And remember, God, going back to chapter 25, God said to Rebekah, before the twins were born, before they were born, the older will serve the younger. So God is intending this. These are God's words. He knows, he's not just predicting the future, but he's also intending that this, this be the case to communicate something theological about himself and about salvation. So if the question is why, that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time on, why is he wanting this? Why is he helping kind of the impossibility of this story to be possible? Why does he want the younger to be, over, to be preferred? Why does he want the unlikely to be kind of highlighted here, even though it doesn't deserve it? And the answer, like it always is in Genesis, uh, is, is grace. So why is the story in the Bible? Why does God want this? To illustrate the idea that it's not about us. It's all about God's grace. And so we're going to read from Romans 9, 10 to 13. Uh, if you want to turn there, great. As a, a wider context here, I, I encourage you to read all of chapter 9 and even beyond, actually the whole book actually. Uh, is, it's basically a defense of the idea of grace. If you want to, there's so many ways to summarize Romans, but Romans is this theological masterpiece of grace. It's, it's, he's writing to the Roman church of the first century and, and writing to build up Christians by reminding, reminding them how much it's not about them and how much God has saved, how much God has chosen, how much God has worked kind of behind the curtains of history and even in the forefront of them uh, to redeem people by his own power. And so in context with that then, he actually highlights this story. Jacob and Esau and this very story come up in the New Testament book of Romans. And so let's see how he handles this in these four verses. So he says in Romans 9, 10 to 13, When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So two quotes there from the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis 25 is the older will serve the younger. I mentioned that one. The latter one is from Malachi 1, the last book of the Old Testament. God speaking in both. So God says the older will serve the younger, and later he says through Malachi, kind of over all of Israel, uh, different context there, but brings them up again and says, Jacob, I love the Esau. I, I hated. So as if it weren't uh, difficult already, let's kind of plop this one on top and cross this bridge together. Cozy up, right, to this nice, warm, fuzzy one uh, passage. But, but what I want to do is uh, talk about this in the big picture first then, and then kind of dive into some details here. Uh, but the first is just to encourage you to see that this is how the New Testament interprets this one, or this old one. This is how Paul in the New Testament reads the story of Jacob and Esau. It's it's not, Genesis 25 and 27, are, are not an example of how not to do family, though we should probably try hard, I guess, not to be like them. That's fine. But, uh, and it's not, a, you know, an example of how not to deal with, you know, end-of-life inheritances or, or things like that. It's not what they're saying, what he's saying. Rather, he's seen the principle of grace in it. The fact that it's not by our effort, but God's that we're saved. He's He's making the argument and, and then says, see, it's, it's like the story of Jacob and Esau. 
Before either of them were born, before any good or bad was done by either of them, God said, the older will serve the younger. He gave preference to Jacob. Why? So that the purpose of election, which is a word that means uh, God's calling or God's choice or uh, God's work in a heart uh, to draw people to the cross and to kind of cause their heart to believe, to woo, them, to woo them to himself. God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works. See, the contrast is pounded home here. It's back in Genesis. It's right here smack in the middle of the New Testament. It's a defense of grace over and against the idea of morality and works and personal effort. Not because of works, but because of him who calls dead people and makes them alive who calls out into tombs and says, live, who calls with the gospel and says, believe in me. Here's my love for you, my gift of myself, who calls out and makes hard hearts soft. It's part of the, when the Old Testament prophets first see the New Testament, first see what, how God's going to work in a special way in the future, that part of history that we're in now on this side of the cross. He talks about the, 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 how the heart is hardened to a point of irredemption. It's impossible to to soften on a, on a human-based level. But he says, I'm, I'm going to create new hearts in people by my own strength. And it's going to be clear that I save and people don't save themselves. And so that idea is, is embedded there too. It's a promise that's now fulfilled. So God says this so that it might be clear that, that he saves, that he walks by tombs and says, get up. So that it might be clear, he says to Rebecca in Genesis 25, love how this connection is made. So the gospel might be kind of undergirded. At the very beginning of the Bible, he said to Rebecca, your secondborn will be the one through whom my solution will come. The unlikely, the unexpected, the unfair even. I will work in unfair ways, in terms of human-based understanding, unfair ways to show that it's not by people, not by bloodline, not by works, not by common sense that people are saved, but by my power and by my strength, ultimately through my son's death and resurrection. Another uh, biblical word for this is um, <clears throat> predestination, which is a biblical word used multiple times in the New Testament to talk about how God predestines the church uh, to be saved. Uh, and, and we caution against a lot of times here when we talk about this uh, at the church, and, and actually we feel like we talk about this every week, just not with this word attached, because it doesn't always come up in the actual passage we're talking about. Uh, but uh, the, we caution against philosophizing too much about that. And kind of, it, it's easy for us as modernist kind of Western Christians to go there and say, well, if this, then this. And a lot of times the Bible says, no, it's too, it's too black and white. It's too, too much of a false dichotomy. Uh, it's too either or, too black and white. Embrace the gray. Uh, embrace the, the, the theological tension. So, so we can tend to go to the, kind of the end of, well, then we're puppets or then God is kind of a masochist or, um, you know, one, one, or a killjoy or something like that. That's never what the scriptures teach. It's always for joy. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But, so, but it, it doesn't mean that our actions have nothing to do with it. We actually see this in the story. We see, back in Genesis, we see Esau's actions cooperate with this idea. He rejected God's grace. You know, later in Exodus, when it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart first, then it says God hardened his heart. They cooperate. Esau hardened his heart. Esau was a fool eating the stew over the rich inheritance of his father. So remember, that was, if you were here, that was the warning. Is, that's a picture, according to Hebrews 12, of a Christian, or almost a Christian, rejecting grace and saying, oh, I understand the idea of the gospel, but this pleasure outweighs it for me. And so people, tend to, people leave. And the Bible says, don't be like that. Be the church that perseveres to the very end. And so we've seen that in this very story. Esau despised God's grace. His actions cooperated with, with God's predestining choice. But it still is, with that said, it still is saying that in the end, we have very little, if anything, to do with, with our salvation because God predestines, he elects, he calls, all kind of synonymous words. He calls people himself and actually wants to save us. He's active, not passive in that process, so that, again, it's clear we're saved by grace and not by works. 2 Timothy 1, 9 to 10, another passage. We could look at many, but one of my favorites. Paul writes this to a Christian named Timothy, but it applies to all of us because we're, if, if we're Christians in the room or if we're becoming that or if we will be that uh, too, but especially those of you who are saved today. 
He says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So very important dots are being connected here when we talk about predestination. He's saying, well, God decides before time begins what, what he did way in the past in terms of kind of knowing how sin was going to come into the world and knowing who he was going to save. The manifestation of that physically, the accessibility increases as we look at the cross. We, can, we, look, at, we look at his son dying on a cross and we look at that empty tomb that first Easter morning and we say, that's how God shows us grace ultimately. That how God, that's how God works in spite of our works ultimately. And that's that manifestation of if we believe it, then we, then we can know, we can access the idea better and say, well, then we are predestined because we've been called to it. And I'll, and I'll end with this too, but I like that word manifested here, how it's just important theological dots to, to, to pull us away from just the question of predestination. The Bible never sits there. It's too hard to access. We, none of us were there. It's too mysterious, too far above us. He says, the way that you see that kind of play out in the present and in your lives is through God's Son bloodied to a pulp on a cross among criminals in love for people. So that no one can say, I boast in my efforts and in my moral goodness. But we look at God's work and say, that's how we're saved. And if we believe, we know that he's been at work in our hearts to, to draw us to him. So we have responsibility to choose. But behind the curtains always is God helping us to choose him. So he cho he, we choose because he first chose us, you could say. So let's try to uh, address a couple of these things, though, back in Romans 9 before we um, you know, make some further points about this. You know, one of the questions you might have had, I know I have, uh, I can joke for first service, that everybody in the, in the room probably had this, including the two mice that are running around uh, in the room, is, um, is, is why hate? Uh, it's, you know... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but Esau, I hate it. It seems a little bit, a little bit unfair and a little harsh and not a word you normally see attached to God. Um, and so the Greek word here is uh, miseo, uh, at, least, at least the lexical form is, which means to hate or detest. Um, it, there's no real easy way around it. It's a tough passage. Uh, it, it, even the, the looser, more liberal interpretations of English Bibles translate hate because it means hate. It, it's not, miseo means hate. And so it's translated that way in pretty much every English translation. In fact, I did not find one that didn't have it. Um, it probably, I didn't look exhaustively. If you're in one right now and you see that, let me know. I'm curious to know which one doesn't have it. But, uh, but I know the Greek word is literally hate. One thing to say, though, it is used comparatively in the Bible to mean love less. It's one thing that does kind of help us here because there, there are connotations in English for hatred that are, that are not implied in the first century and in the Bible. So we have to kind of, again, 21st century American Christians, uh, we have to kind of soften this a little bit to say that when the Bible uses it, it uses it in the love less kind of idea. And so, for example, in Luke 14, when Jesus says, to be my disciple, you have to hate your life, and you have to hate your parents, and you have to hate your brother and sister. It's like, we don't say, and I don't think Jesus means that you have to actively hate them. He means love less. Love me so much and my kingdom and my gospel that it appears as though you're moving away from them a little bit. And in that sense, love less. And so it, it's the same idea, same word, literally, same Greek word used in Romans 9. doesn't solve all the tensions with it by any stretch, but it is the same idea. It's, it's used comparatively uh, in terms of two things, to say this one's loved and this one's hated, or, i.e., um, love, love less. But the point is still intact. Not all are saved. Uh, this, this is an unavoidable point back in Genesis all the way through Romans uh, and everything in between. There are Esau's in the world. There are Jacob's in the world. There are those who reject grace and there are those who accept grace. At the very baseline level, we, we see this in the scriptures all over the place and we see it in life. Not all are saved. Universalism, the idea that all are saved, is uh, extremely uh, biblically untenable. Again, everything teaches us this. So, uh, but, but again, we might pile on here and say, well, you, you, isn't God love as well? Might be another question we have. I thought the scripture said that God is, is um, love. And, and you're right. Uh, 
this is, the, this is the tension in the gospel story. The Bible never says God is hate. The Bible does say God is love. Uh, but that's the tension. God is not, you know, we, we tend to do this sometimes with, as we look at a lost world or to ourselves. You know, we, maybe you guys have heard the phrase, um, love the sinner, hate the sin. Anyone ever heard that one before? Uh, it's not wrong, uh, but it's also not full uh, in the sense that it's not complete or the way that God necessarily sees things. Because, you know, sin is not just like this, uh, you know, um, thing that kind of hopped on our back, a little munchkin or something, a little, and we kind of look back there and say, whoa, how'd that thing get there? You know, it, it, we didn't back into it. We sinned. We chose to sin, right? We, we chose to rebel. And so when God looks at us, he sees an enemy. And I'm talking in a very broad kind of worldly, uh, kind of global picture here. I, I, you know, on, on this side of Christ, we are his friends, of course, but just talking generally. God does not separate us from sin. So that's why he's not just plucking sin out of people because they didn't do anything and then just saving everybody. He's destroying people who are sinners. Hell makes no sense, the doctrine of it, without it. That's the problem, the, the, the tension in Scripture is that we uh, are not separated from our sin. It's something he, he in Christ pulls out of us and atones for and passes over, but without him, uh, we are not separated uh, from it. So sin is, a great, sin is a great offense. And remember, we talked about this too uh, back in Genesis 3 um, when we talked about sin. Very important to understand, it's a big deal, and um, this whole idea of predestination, in fact, is a, a close cousin to the idea of sin, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but th the idea in Genesis 3 was not that we have just done a few bad things, but that we have snubbed God. We have committed cosmic high treason. We have gone our own way. We have self-deified. Uh, so our sin is a great offense to him kind of on that level. We have rejected, spat on him. We're, we're kind of like, if you've seen Lord, the Lord of the Rings or read the books, we're kind of like Denethor, uh, the, the steward of Gondor, you know, who, um, you guys know that character? Uh, kind of the, one of the worst guys in the whole series, I think. What, basically what the Bible says is we are like him. We hate the king, the true king. We want the throne for ourselves. We're dark, wicked, pagan, selfish, turned inward. That's what sin is. That's what theologians of all history have said is it's a great turning inward. It's, a, it's, it's the ultimate act of selfishness. And it plays out like murder and adultery and lying, but those are symptoms of the greater cause. And so a perfectly good God has every right, and even necessitates this, but every right to hate evil. So, so that's the tension. That's the problem God resolves through his son, but we've got to sit in the tension for a little bit as well. Otherwise, we won't want the solution. The tension is all of us deserve to be hated. But because God is love, he's showing love to some by grace through his son and winning some bad guys over to his side, some denethors over to his side. In some ways, he, he patiently shows it to all. But not all receive him, like Esau, not all receive him, so they remain exiled from him, hellbound, and under this sentence of being rejected by God if they remain there. But again, I want to try to steer us back to something here uh, after addressing that for a second, to what Paul really wants. And I, I can't harp on this enough. This is one of the most important things to understand about this doctrine biblically is in every single biblical instance that predestination and election and God doing everything, us doing nothing comes up. It's written to Christians for our joy. Every single time. It's never really philosophized about. A little bit in Romans 9, he kind of, put, he asks, he kind of, he kind of anticipates questions like, you know, well, who will resist God's will then? If this is the case, then we're just puppets. And, you know, and Paul responds to that and, and says, actually, no, it's not the case at all. God has a right to do whatever he wants with what he made. He's like, the great, he's like the great sculptor who can create certain pots for certain things and other pots for certain things. And, and he actually, the, the great kind of, kind of scathing um, response to one of those questions is, who are you, old man, to talk back to God? You know, we have ways we think we'd run the universe. And he actually gets a little bit heated there because, you know, one of the, what's wrapped up in the question of, I hate that doctrine, is I have a better way of running the universe. 
what God says is good is always good. So to call it evil is to call God that way. And so he says, who are you? Who are we? To talk back to God. But anyway, I digress. Uh, he, but what, what he really wants the church to see and to be grounded and to steer us back to is happiness and joy. To focus on Jacob's acceptance, not Esau's rejection. So he's writing this to Christians, you know, remember, chosen ones. And, and so that's, that's the joy in this doctrine for us is how it undergirds the gospel. We, the gospel means good news. It means that God saves us, we don't save ourselves. He does it through his son. And so this related kind of cousin-like doctrine undergirds it because it says, oh, God actually does do everything. <laughs> it's not just he, he did the cross and the empty tomb, but he actually is the one who brought us there as well. He actually does do everything. Oh, I didn't know it was quite that far. Maybe that's where you're at. That's where all of us are. I was. Still am, kind of. It's, it's a hard doctrine to grasp. But it actually undergirds the idea that, we, that God actually wants to save and that he intended before we were even made. So, so if you're saved today, if you're being saved, if you are saved, Jacob's story is our story. Uh, we're, we're Jacob. We're a fool. We're a liar. We're a conniver. We're, an unlikely, we're the second born. We're an unlikely candidate for salvation, but we're given it anyway. You know, but before you guys were born, before you did anything good or bad, you were chosen. See how it's so much not about morality there? All those bad things you've done in life, before any of those were done, you were chosen. All those good things in life that you think are maybe to your credit, before any of those good things were done, God said you were chosen. So it's not about works. It humbles and it lifts up. It humbles the pride in us and it lifts us up when we're downtrodden, when we fear that maybe we're separated from God forever because we haven't, been, we haven't measured up. Does both. All of that stuff, before any of it happened, he saw you, he knew you, he knew how you'd fall away, he knew what you did this morning that brings you shame right now, and he chose to save you through his son nonetheless. That thing you're going to do next week, you don't even know yet, that will bring great offense to him and grieve him. He chose you so that that can't be a, that, that's not an off-ramp of salvation. Past, present, and future, he's died for. Past, present, and future, he knew, and he still looked at you and said, that's my daughter. That's my son. I've got his back. I'll fight the greatest of battles for him. I'll win her to myself. She's my bride. And I look at her as a husband, not as a cordial boss at best. I love her. See, Jacob's acceptance is in focus. The warning of Esau is still in play. Don't be like him. Don't despise the grace of God. But the acceptance of Jacob is at the forefront. Paul wants the happiness and joy of the church. He's writing to sinners. And if we don't have this kind of undergirding doctrine, we'll question, we'll doubt, we'll wonder. You know, it's, it, it's one of those things where, um, you know, if, if you can flip it on its head and say, if God doesn't predestine, then he's never chosen you. He isn't choosing you, and he never will choose you for eternity. Good luck finding joy in that, right? A good, healthy theology of God and of election and of grace brings joy to the downtrodden and the sinner, the worst among us, the, families, the, the family of Isaac and Rebekah the most dysfunctional, uh, because it, it shows us God is stronger than our sins, the worst of them. And that's why we talk a lot about sin, you know, here. It's not just to stay there, it's to move past it. You know, it, all this is actually, um, it, it's, it's good news when we know our sin. I, I had a um, uh, seminary professor when I was at Bethel say this, and I forgot who it was. I, you know, it changed my life, but I can't remember anything about the guy. Uh, but he said, um, the phrase was the, the, the relationality of doctrines. The, the idea is doctrine A necessitates that you believe doctrine B. What you believe about sin necessitates what you believe about the cross. If you are big in your eyes, God is small. If you are small, God is big. 
If sin is big, the cross is bigger. If sin is small, the cross is small. It affects our view of atonement. It affects our view of how great our need is. And so when we talk about sin, then sin is really a really big deal. We talk about it in terms of cosmic high treason. We talk about it in terms of how God is just to reject and to hate evil and the evil inside us. Yet he is loved to kind of raise that tension for a reason so that we'll want this doctrine and know we need it all the more. And so what I mean by this, kind of in graph form here, is if we have a big view of our sin and believe we're evil to the core and think ourselves undeserving of salvation, predestination and the idea of election will make more sense and will be a relief. If we have a small view of sin and believe we and others are essentially good and value fairness more than love, uh, predestination will remain an enigma and will greatly offend us. And we'll seek to defend God from it. We'll say, no, God can't be that because he's this. Remember, uh, grace and fairness are at odds. If, if God was fair and he pushed fairness over all things, we would all be in hell in an instant because that's what we deserve. That's fair. It's unfair that he shows grace to people who have offended him. So we, we think sometimes it's fair. My kids push this too in our home, and I'm, I'm like, oh, the fair thing, my firstborn especially. And that's, that's the way I am too. So I'm like, oh, I wish I didn't have that because I have that. But um, I, I passed on my worst stuff, you know, to my kids, kind of that thing. I'm glad Aletha is uh, my wife because they got all her good stuff. But um, my one thing is I, I'm a big fairness guy, but it's not the gospel. There's that, that parable where Jesus says, the gospel is kind of like this. Uh, a, a vineyard owner hires two people, one at 9 a.m. and one at 3 p.m. They both quit at 5 and they get paid the same. That's the gospel. That, that's, the, that's the unfairness. It's like, well, come on, let's pay the guy. No, God, God has a right to do with what belongs to him what he wants. It's not about works. So at the end, we can't say, but I worked more. No, you were chosen by grace to have a job. You were loved. You were elected before you did anything evil or good, ever. You were chosen and loved so that God gets the glory, not you. The last will be first to show that it's not about being first. You know, if, if we're all, in the, all of us in the room right here, like if, if Jesus appears and we're like representative of the world, the whole church, for all of time, I know, weird hypothetical. Let's just say that's the case. I'm the last in because I'm the leader of this church. I'm the last in. And the person who is a Christian for three seconds is the first in. To show that it's not by works. The last will be first and the first will be last in. Not that there's a line or something, but let's just, whatever. Let's say that there is. I'm the last. The elders are the last. It's not about hard work. It's about God's choice. It's about God's purpose and election. Unfair grace is good news, and it's linked so closely with a healthy doctrine of sin. And that's what we see. It's what God, while God is doing this in the Bible, he's flipping things on its head. Jacob gets in, or Jacob gets the inheritance. Jacob's going to be in line, the line of Christ. To show that, it's not common sense. It's not works. It's not bloodline. It's who God wants. It's who God works in. It's who God saves through his son, through us by grace. And that's where we have to go. I, just want, I want to make sure we get there here at the end. It's one of the easy things I know, um, for me anyway, with this doctrine, and I'm all in on it. It's easy to stay there and to kind of just philosophize about it, wonder about it. The Bible never stays there, though. It always uses it as a launch pad to get somewhere else. What do we do with this doctrine? Because you can think, well, this kind of freaks me out. Am I elected or not? Am I predestined or not? I'm just a puppet. Why, why do anything? The Bible never goes there. God never goes there. This is where he takes us. Run. Don't walk. Because this is all true, because Genesis 27 exists, because there's such stories in the Bible, because predestination is the thing, because grace is the thing, because God actually wants to save us, and he's patient, and he's loving because he chooses dead people to come to life. 
because of all of that, run here, because this is where, like we said before, the predestining choice of God is manifested. This is where it gets tangible and accessible. This is where God says, like Rebecca to, to Jacob, Rebecca is kind of a type of Christ in this story. This is where God says to us, let the curse fall on me. Let me be the Esau. Let me be the cursed child. It's exactly what God says to us through his son. Because the Bible says he's cursed when he hangs on a tree. And he becomes the curse himself so that we might become blessed. The cursed ones might kind of transfer over. And the bad guys might become good guys. The enemies of God might become friends. So run to the cross. It's not just enough to say God predestines. We have to ask, how does he save? What physical sign of his saving power do we have at work in the Bible? And the answer is, Jesus' death and resurrection. Which is not just this idea of uh, letting the curse fall on me, but it's this, it's this great giant neon flashing sign that says, I am doing it all for you. It's where this en enigmatic doctrine becomes tangible. Where I run to the cross and say, I believe that God has died for me there, that by grace he's saving me, that I did nothing to earn that. It's an inheritance, not a paycheck. If we run there, then we look at our choice, our response to God's offer, and then we say, I'm saved, and I must have been one of the predestined ones then, because I'm saved. Because he always calls those who he predestines. Romans 8 says, those he predestined, he called with the gospel, and those whom he called, he also saved and justified. So again, guys, I just want to encourage you in that. The question is not, am I predestined? The question is, do I believe in the gospel? That's the question. God didn't, God didn't leave it to you to wonder. It's never, ever the, ever the point about this doctrine, never, biblically, to wonder if I am. You can know you are if you're called with the gospel and if you respond, and then you can take peace in that. And that, that's the second thing here. Where do we go with this is breathe, relax, sleep soundly at night because this is all true. Laugh at yourself. Confess sins openly. Don't hide your messes. Worship joyfully and with thanksgiving. Actually apply the idea that it's not about you. Love others boldly without the need for recognition or reciprocation. Put others first. Why? Because you're predestined to be saved. You're like Jacob. This is the most humbling and freeing doctrine that there is in as much as it's kind of connected to the cross and the empty tomb. It gets us, it's, it's, these things up here are things that everybody would say, hey, these, these are good things. The Bible says do all these things, basically. Um, you know, sleep soundly, I think there's something there, but you know, it's, I think it's a good thing, but whatever. Um, I like to sleep. But these are all good things, right? Oops, that was me. All good things. Why? What are they grounded on? They're grounded on this. The doctrine allows those things to occur. And humility is the same way. Uh, you know, it's why we talk about the gospel so much here, because we want humility. I want humility. But humility doesn't come from trying hard to be humble. It comes from thinking less about ourselves and more about the man on the cross. We think about him and we understand grace, you know, and we think before I did anything, good or bad, all my good stuff, you mean? It doesn't mean it's unimportant. God can get glory in that. But before I did any of that, I was already chosen so that that's not a part of the equation of my salvation. Yeah, that's the answer. Exactly the answer. He's the answer. So breathe, relax, sleep soundly at night. Confess sins openly because you're not held to them anymore. You know, people that really get this doctrine are, are more apt to say, I'm a mess. Because you're not saved by being perfect. You're saved by being loved and chosen. And then lastly here, kind of relatedly, um, breathe and relax, sleep soundly, all those things on top. Because you can't lose what you've been given. It's one of those um, dramatic things at the end of the story you see is... Um, I don't know if you guys thought this. I always think this with the story. I'd be kind of like, why didn't Isaac just say, oops, sorry, you know, it's more my intent that matters here, Jacob. I thought you were Isaac, so I'm going to take it away and give it to Esau. Anybody wonder that? 
Does that make sense? Why, why wouldn't he do that? <laughs> you know, he just kind of says, well, I already gave it away. Sorry. We don't know exactly. There might be some cultural things there in play. But theologically, it's actually really good news. If we're Jacob, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. Jacob's, even though unintentioned even, this is like where it's not a one-to-one with God, but even here in this story, the ridiculousness of it, even here, the point is how much more with God? Even here, if it wasn't changed over to Esau, how much more with God who wants us to be saved forever? How much more? We take, take heart and encourage, you cannot lose what God gives. If God chose before you were born, how can you like sin yourself out of that? Believe the gospel, breathe, sleep soundly, laugh at your sin and walk away from it. Rejoice in the empty tomb. Because you've been predestined, loved, fought for, died for, and because you can't lose it, the gifts and calling and salvation of God are, are irrevocable. Pray. God, thank you for this passage and your grace as we respond with this song. Um, pray that you would, as always, uh, with our music and other aspects of our life, that you would be central and that you'd be thanked. Uh, we have you to thank. We, again, we actually have you to thank. We say that, the Bible says that, but this idea of you doing everything and being so at work in our lives and such a mover towards us elicits thanksgiving at a much higher level than contra doctrines. You have done everything. And so, God, help us to, to not be like Esau, rejecting grace, but to be like um, a, one who instead pursues it, um, but then realizing it's not really our pursuit, it's yours of us. We're like Jacob. And so, God, um, as, we look, as we look at the cross, I like to say all the time, when in doubt, theologically, just look at the cross. <laughs> you know, when in doubt about something, stare at the cross and think, that's God. That's love. That's the gospel and kind of let the other difficult-to-understand doctrines sort themselves out because they kind of end up doing that as we stare at the cross and see ourselves in light of it and see our Savior on it. Uh, So help us to do that now as we sing and leave here. In Christ's name we pray it all. Amen.